the Russian KGB had a dossier on him. He attended the funeral for the Soviet head of state and led the international team responding to the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Dr. Robert Peter Gale lives a life that one will be portrayed in the movies. <laughs> Actually, in 1991, a film was made based on his accounts at Chernobyl, in which the Golden Globe winning actor John Voight portrayed him. Known for his work in leukemia, transplantation, and cancer immunology, Dr. Gale has published over 1,000 scientific articles and more than 20 books. But above all that, he has shown himself to be a humanitarian who truly cares for his patients and is an advocate for caring for others beyond nationalities and borders. This is Medicine Beyond the Science. The Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986 is considered the worst nuclear disaster in history. Our guest, Dr. Robert Peter Gale, was asked by the government of the Soviet Union to coordinate medical relief efforts to the victims of the accident. Now, Dr. Gale, first, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And what fascinates me is that during the height of the Cold War between the world's two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, an American will be asked by the Soviets to come help. Now, I don't mean to sound skeptical, but did they really reach out to you? Well, that's that's true. Um, you know, um, I had many Soviet contacts prior to 1986. I had been going to the Soviet Union uh, as a scientist and as a physician since the early 1970s, and I studied Soviet affairs in university. So I knew... Did you have to learn any Russian? Uh, a bit, yeah. I mean, like many New Yorkers, I have a grandfather from Belarus. You know, uh, if you go to Brighton Beach, of course, you will be speaking Russian. Oh, yeah? Yeah. In any event, um, I, I had met a number of the Soviet leaders over the years, Mr. Chernyenko, Andropov, and eventually at the funeral of Mr. Andropov, I had met uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, so when I heard of the Chernobyl accident and I realized the magnitude of the accident, but also I had been studying, um, you know, the Soviet nuclear program and my colleagues in the Soviet Union, I knew the resources that they had but more importantly, the resources they lacked. And so it was, I would say, some fortuitous, um, uh, maybe the perfect storm. I mean, we had resources that could help the victims. Um, I knew, and the Soviets, you know, through the KGB, certainly had a thick dossier on me. So they knew who I was and I knew who they were. And as I've said in the past, a nuclear accident anywhere is really a nuclear accident everywhere. So it was to everybody's advantage for me to help them um, with their problem. Now, I have to ask you, when you said you met Gorbachev, what do you mean by that exactly? Like you met his affiliates, you met people that worked for him? No, I mean, um, 
you may or may not know that it was a, a series of, after Khrushchev, there were a series of Soviet leaders, Brezhnev. Um, he was followed by Andropov. Andropov was the um, teacher or let's say mentor of Gorbachev in the KGB. And, um, but he only lasted about a year when he died. And when Soviet leaders die, there's usually a, I would say, very nice funeral in a building called the Hall of the Columns in Moscow. So uh, Dr. Armand Hammer and I were invited to uh, Andropov's funeral. And naturally, we made Gorbachev there just briefly, of course. You met him in person? Sure. I mean, I met him the way you would wow. meet someone, you know, at a funeral for a head of state. I mean, you... Sure. Did you ever feel unwelcome as an American over in the Soviet Union? Well, um, I was welcome myself as a scientist. I had been going there and giving lectures and meeting with colleagues over the years. But I also had another connection, uh, let's say a, a more political connection, through Dr. Armand Hammer. Now, Hammer was um, an important figure in the Soviet Union, um, you know, in, in the 1920s. And he was, uh, in some ways, an informal conduit to the Soviets, you know, during the Cold War. And so I would go to the Soviet Union occasionally with Dr. Hammer on, uh, you know, art, you know, he had an art collection that was exhibited in various places in the Soviet Union. He had a flat in Moscow and um, he knew all these Soviet leaders. And so um, I had my own avenue through science. And then I had a second avenue through Dr. Hammer, who was my neighbor here in Los Angeles. This is kind of maybe a, a question that people ask, because if I were to walk down the street right now, in Orlando, Florida, and I were to ask people, is Russia our enemy? Absolutely. Everybody's going to get all upset because they're always very inundated with a very specific mindset. But being that you've been over there, being that you've met the people, and yes, I know that there's differences between the political ideologies and even still there's different leaders, but is Russia really our enemy? It's, that's a complex question. I, I think that um, on a person-to-person -person basis, of course, sure. um, many Americans come from a Russian background or an Eastern European background. Especially in New York, yeah. Maybe your father. Yeah, he does. Yeah, Polish. Yeah, well, you know, what was Poland one day was Russia the next day. So you know, changing borders. But... On a personal level, I can't imagine that, you know, people can be very different and that, um, you know, the average American who understands this, I mean, because, of course, many people have a difficulty identifying where Russia is on a map. So it's true, <laughs> you know, uh, something like 60 percent of high school seniors think that Sweden is in South America. So, you know, we have a fundamental geographical limitation here. But, um, you know, most, we are so closely um, 
align to Russian um, activities and values, for example, uh, our literature, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, I mean, is a fundamental part of the European canon of literature. Our music, Tchaikovsky, you know, I couldn't say many others. Painting, one of my favorites, of course, is Kandinsky um, and Chagall. Well, I mean, these are all Russian or Belarusian or Soviet um, people. So the, the Russian contribution to the Western canon um, is fundamental. And in fact, we have much more in common, of course, with Russians than we have with Chinese. Um, but, you know, um, sometimes, you know, we get into these political rows um, and um, that's most unfortunate. But I just would go back and say, yes, among scientists and so forth and so on, we have a certain communication, but I think this is especially important in the field of medicine. Because in medicine, we're dealing with lives, people's lives. So regardless of your political orientation, and when we deal with radiation and nuclear events, we're in a very sensitive area. But no one wants a Russian or an American to die for lack of resources. I mean, we don't, I don't think we've lowered ourselves to that level. And so Americans are more than willing and able to help um, people everywhere in the world. As I mentioned before, that a lot of our listeners, they're coming from overseas that are listening. So they may not be familiar with this show, but there was a show called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Do you recall this show? Sure. Oh, it was my favorite show as a kid growing up. And Mr. Rogers, he was being interviewed by a reporter one time. And he said this, and this is really important to me. He said, whenever there is something catastrophic in a movie or in a news program, always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, even if it's on the sidelines. I find it so important that now more than ever, that when you see a tragedy like Chernobyl, like you saw in Fukushima, like the 1988 Armenian earthquake, all of these that you are familiar with, that we take a look not just at the tragedy and what has gone on, but also looking at the helpers that you see there. Because when you see the helpers, you know that there is hope. And what could you say that you learned about people, not just in terms of, oh, wow, like, this could have been prevented or this could have been stopped. At that point, you can't think of that no more. It already is in the past. But what could you say that you learned from the helpers and the support that you saw of people coming from America to the Soviet Union or from America to Japan? What could you say that you learned about people? Yeah, well, people are people, I guess, is a trite way of saying it. But right now, not so far from you, you have this collapsed building in uh, north of yeah, Miami. In Miami area, yep. But you have teams from Israel and Mexico, rescue teams from Israel and Mexico. Now we're in the middle of a pandemic and Israel and Mexico are both in lockdown. But this hasn't stopped these search and rescue people from flying to Miami 
and digging through this, uh, you know, terrible collapse of a building looking for survivors, which is fundamentally what we had to do in Armenia as well, uh, where we lost 70,000 people from an earthquake. Not 150, but 70,000. So, um, yeah, so there are always people of high moral fiber who will come to the rescue. See, when I was living in the Mojave Desert, I don't know if you were you were in LA during this time, July of 2019. I was at the I was living in a town called Ridgecrest. Nobody's ever heard of this little tiny town in the desert, but we were the epicenter of two back-to-back earthquakes. And you could feel it all the way in Los Angeles, but it was not as severe there. But there was 7.6, one right after the other. And I grew up on the East Coast, so I never felt an earthquake before, and it was terrifying. The ground cracked open. There were no casualties. I could not imagine 70,000 people perishing in one event. Yeah, it's um, it's very, very sad. It was, um, you know, it's a, Armenia is an earthquake-prone area, but it was unfortunately the result of, um, I would say, second-rate building regulations. So these 10 or 20-story buildings um, just pancaked and everyone in them was killed. Um, I mean, we were able to rescue, um, some, you know, some people, um, the U S state department sent a team of which I was a part to Armenia immediately. And we did the best we could. We were joined by rescue teams from many other nations. Um, and we all, you know, sort of pitched in, as did the local search and rescue people. We spoke just very briefly before this podcast started, but I got to say, I, I've noticed that there's something really unique about you in the case that you really do seem to care for people. Because we can look at many successful people, people that have had a lot of great careers, and sometimes I see a disconnect between them and people. And I look at your CV and it's very impressive. You've published over 1,000 scientific articles, more than 20 books. You have done on multiple topics looking at U.S.-Soviet relations. You've spoken and written little uh, periodicals in the New York Times, L.A. Times, Washington Post, USA Today, Wall Street Journal. I mean, it just keeps going on. But I guess the most important thing above all that, yeah, that's fantastic. And of course, I'm not diminishing that in any way, but I think the most important thing sometimes is whether or not we have a good heart. Uh, surely. Um, being a physician, of course, um, that takes care of people is one of the great privileges of our profession, right? We are, especially as a oncologist dealing with people with cancer and leukemia and things like that, you know, we have the privilege on a one-by-one basis every minute to try to help people um, overcome terrible events for which they had you know, no control. I mean, a child gets leukemia, someone gets lung cancer. So I think physicians are not you know, business tycoons running massive things. If they're actually practicing physicians like I am, when you go to the hospital every day, 
you are dealing with people's lives. It's almost impossible to not be immediately aware um, of people's needs and to some extent have the fantasy that you can change the course of nature. Now, you know, often we fail, but we fail trying. And that's the important thing. And also, I just would say that we're inspired, of course, by the bravery of the people we treat. You know, they are the real heroes. You know, people who go through these, I'm, I do transplants. And, um, you know, we put people through hell. Uh, these people, and many of them don't survive, but many of them do. And, you know, these people are the, are the real heroes, not us, but they. I mean, if I was faced with the, the decision to receive some of the therapies that I give, I'm not so certain that I wouldn't chicken out. I'm not certain that I'd be willing to go through some of the things that I have to put people through to try to save their lives. You know, there was somebody close to me that they were they were passing away, but they told me something that um, really struck a nerve with me. And what they told me was this. They said, Jake, people will forget what you said. They will forget what you did for them, but they will always, always remember how you made them feel. And I guess that kind of affects the way I talk and treat people now, because I always want to think to myself, well, what type of feelings am I leaving behind? And I guess the question I want to ask you is that you've had a really great life. You've had a really successful career, but what do you, what would you like to leave behind in terms of what would you like people to feel or to remember you as like in terms of a legacy in, in the future generations? Well, that's a, what I would call a heavy question, but um, it is on it a couple is, of levels. Yeah. On one level, you know, it is the lives we save. You know, in the Bible, it says, whoever saves one life saves all of mankind. And as a physician, you have the privilege to save more than one life. And these people are walking around and they send you emails and they send you photographs of their family and their kids and their grandkids. I mean, I have some people who I treated for leukemia almost 50 years ago. They're getting old with me. So that's, that's one thing. But on another level, what you leave behind in a field like mine, or your students, right? I mean, we're teachers. And our most important product in that sphere are the people we train. And they are your legacy. What they go on to do is a perpetuation of what you started. So I think for a teacher that and this is not just as a physician. I mean, this is for a high school teacher or for anyone who teaches other people. 
your legacy, what you leave behind, or your students, and what they accomplish? Yeah, that is a heavy question now that I'm thinking of it, and it's a heavy answer too. I guess I just want to end this podcast by saying that no matter what lies ahead of us or how difficult things may be, and we've 2020 and 2021 have also been very difficult for people, but it's so important now more than ever to remain strong. And one way is thinking about someone who helped you and made you the person that you are. Someone who wanted only the best for you, who encouraged you, and loved you just for being you. And those are the people we need. Dr. Gale, I have to ask you, who is that person for you? And how have they impacted your career in medicine? Well, I mean, of course, for everyone, or hopefully for almost everyone, the only unconditional love is your parents. None of us are here, none of us are successful without the support of our parents. But of course, I've had a number of, in my scientific career, you know, I've had a number of very important mentors. I owe my skills in in the laboratory and in my writings to just a few people, perhaps less than 10, but who were my mentors during my um, educational years. I guess there's a lot of people listening right now, and they're all either practicing physicians, they're in medical school, they're thinking about getting into nursing or to be a physicist assistant, or they want to go into the medical field. We really like to promote research and publication here in this journal. And on the podcast, we try to find common ground. And I guess the question I want to last ask you is this one is, what advice would you give to anyone, regardless of what field of medicine, they may not be going into oncology, but what advice would you give them? Because there's going to be moments where they're going to have hard times. There's going to be have moments where they're going to doubt whether or not this is the right pick for them or they did the right choice. And what advice would you give to them? The, this is a common um, question in an academic milieu when we have physicians who, you know, come to you and they say, well, I don't know, should I become a cardiologist? Should I become a oncologist? You know, what should I do? And what I really tell them, and this also comes up in the laboratory, you know, what research should I focus on? And my answer in both spheres is, what it, it doesn't really make, firstly, we have a, a fantasy that we have choices. I mean, almost all of our courses are dictated by forces outside of our control. So that this idea that you really have unlimited choice is, is really not so. You'll be influenced by who was your mentor, what opportunities that were available. You're heavily influenced by whom you marry. We've done a number of studies. Uh, now I go back to a time when most physicians were male. And a study we did maybe 35 years ago was we we had maybe 100 physicians interviewing for 10 positions at UCLA. And we asked each of them, you know, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And of course, there was a standard answer. They wanted to be academic stars. They wanted to be great clinicians. And they wanted to be laboratory scientists. 
I mean, if you didn't say that, you would have no, no chance to get one of these 10 positions. Now, at the same time, we ask their wives, we separately interviewed their wives, and we asked their wives, where do you see you and your husband in 10 years? And some of them said, well, I see my husband in a private medical practice in Malibu. And then about 10 years later, approximately 10 years later, we looked up what had happened to the 10 people that we had selected for these 100 slots. And more often than not, the wives rather than the husbands were correct. So, you know, we, we, think, we think we know ourselves, but that's not always so. Yeah, there is outside influence in everything that we do. Dr. Robert Peter Gale, I want to again thank you so much for your time that you've taken. You're extremely busy, but I got to say thank you for taking the time to again just show that we all have a common ground in love in the way we treat one another and for the care for the patient. And I really appreciate the time that you took with me today to be able to speak on this podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you. And don't go strolling around Orlando in the summer. It is so hot here right now. <laughs> it is ridiculous. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And yes, good luck to you. you. You too. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please subscribe to wherever you'd like to hear podcasts. Until then, be curious and be kind.